You're listening to Catalyze, a podcast from the Moorhead Kane Foundation at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm producer and host Caroline Leland. Today, you're about to hear from Danae Ringelman, Moorhead King class of 2000 and the co-founder of Indiegogo. That is a crowdfunding platform that totally disrupted the fundraising industry when it hit the market in 2008. While Danae and her team were getting the company off the ground, people told them it was a mistake to host it online. In more recent years, the company has faced criticism for its anything goes approach to its mission of democratizing finance. Danae and her team have weathered it all, helping 15 million people raise over a billion dollars for all kinds of projects, including independent films, an electric bike company that you'll hear about in a few minutes, and many, many niche products that most likely would not have gotten off the ground otherwise. Through her work with Indiegogo, Danae has been named to a number of major influencer lists, including Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40. She's spoken at all kinds of conferences around the world. She's even testified for a U.S. House of Representatives subcommittee about innovative ways for small businesses to raise capital. A few months ago, Danae stepped back from Indiegogo to pursue new directions in her life, which we talk about in the upcoming conversation. However, she still serves on Indiegogo's board. My name's Danae Ringelman, and I graduated from Carolina back in 2000. And uh, most recently, I started a company called Indiegogo, which was the first and now largest global crowdfunding platform in the world. And we're doing a lot of other things now, too, to help all kinds of entrepreneurial ideas come to life. How long have you been interested in this field of fundraising or crowdsourcing or combining those two things? So when I think about technology or even think about crowdsourcing, those are really just tools to to achieve kind of something greater. And the problem of unequal distribution of wealth, unequal access to opportunity, has been a problem that I've grown up with. My parents were small business owners. I saw them struggle to get their businesses off the ground and scaling, not because they didn't work really hard, not because they didn't have loyal customers, not because they didn't have amazing employees that they were super loyal to and who were super loyal back to them, but simply because they couldn't access capital. They didn't have the right pedigree and the right background. And I grew up kind of, you know, with dinner table conversations about how they were going to make payroll that week and, and all that kind of stuff. And it just was normal to me. But then when I got out of college, actually, and got into finance, a world that the Moorhead actually helped me break into, it became really clear that finance was a system that just didn't work. It only worked for the few, not the many. And that's the problem that I wanted to actually try to tackle. And the moment where I I realized I had to tackle that was an experience I had helping produce a play off Broadway in New York. I had actually met, met the director of the play at a random event for work. And when I was there, I was one of maybe a handful of people from a bank and everyone else was an artist trying to bring their project to life. And because I was, I had a a name tag that had a bank on it. <laughs> Everybody wanted to talk to me, and it was kind of a heartbreaking experience, especially when another filmmaker had you know, paid all this money to FedEx me his script afterwards and wanted me to produce his play, and I had to explain to him that I'm a junior analyst <laughs> at a bank and I don't actually control capital. But it was that moment that I realized that the system was really, really unfair and that there was this man who had a lifetime of experience telling stories and inspiring people 
yet he was begging me, someone with no experience for money, simply because I worked at a bank. So I started working with one of the filmmakers after that to try, not filmmakers, excuse me, theater directors. And we brought this play to life. And I thought maybe this would be my next chapter in work, you know, which is to move into theater finance or film, film finance and find a way to get independent ideas to the screen and to the stage. And I worked hard. And after three months, we put on this uh, one night production and the goal was to get a bunch of investors there to witness it and an audience there to witness it and for the investors to witness the response of that audience. And everything went perfect. The, the audience loved it. And even the investors personally loved it, but they had different objectives. And they said, thank you, but we can't invest. Goodbye. And the whole deal fell apart. And I just then personally experienced the frustration that my parents had been experiencing that I had witnessed from a lot of these other artists and realizing how difficult it was to bring an idea to life if you just didn't have the right connections and didn't have the right pedigree or background and all that kind of thing. So I also realized that here was this audience that loved this thing and why didn't they have the power to actually make it happen? Why were we dependent on just a few people in the audience who happened to have checkbooks to make it happen? That was kind of what led me back to grad school, business school to start this company. It's what brought my two co-founders on board this idea of democratizing access to capital. And we eventually pivoted from more of an offline idea to an online idea, which a lot of people thought was crazy. Like who would fund anything online? Which I remember heard people here said all the time. So we said, well, let's let's try. So it was kind of a, a very gradual organic journey, but what was consistent was this frustration and how unfair and full of bias, actually, too, the, the process of, of raising money and bringing an idea to life was. Mm-hmm. I'm a millennial, and for me, it seems almost crazy to imagine the world before Indiegogo because it seems so obvious, and I think that just goes to show how good of an idea it is that it's, it's almost hard to imagine the world without it. So this term, crowdfunding, was that something you and your team came up with, or, was, or did someone else invent that term? You know, I think that that term was invented by somebody else. And to your point about when we were starting at the time, actually, I think Facebook was still college only and Twitter had literally just launched. So that's the world we lived in. And so that's why it felt strange for a lot of people to conceive this idea that strangers would want to back an idea that they Mm -hmm. felt passionate about. (laughs) There, right, there wasn't this global internet community yet. So what does the name Indiegogo mean? How did you all come up with that? You know, my co-founder came up with that, our CTO at the time. And he was thinking about the club in LA called Whiskey-A-Go-Go. And he loved the energy of the word. So he kind of took that as inspiration and applied indie instead of, you know, whiskey and put it together. Because the go-go is very about action. Indie is about the independent spirit, the independent idea, the, the person trying to bring something unique into the world. And the go is about making it happen. And then we later joked that the double go was both, the you know, the entrepreneur saying yes and then the world saying yes. Like, you need mm-hmm. two goes to make it happen. Totally works. I like it. So that, that startup process for you, you're, you're getting this off the ground while you're still in business school. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced? And, and was it ever something where you considered just just giving up and, and focusing on, on graduating instead or on something else? It was 
definitely hectic. Basically, I started working at the moment I got to school. In a way, it was a great time to start a company because nothing was hypothetical. It was all very real. And I think the secondary benefit of that was I remember a couple of students, classmates, pulled me over once in a class where I was very vocal in the class, asking a ton of questions, and they kept saying, I'm so glad you were asking those questions. I had the same thing, but I didn't want to look stupid. Mm. <laughs> and I think, you know, I was investing all of my savings at the time and all my t- extra time into this company. I didn't have the luxury of worrying about what I looked like, <laughs> whether I looked smart or not. Right. I needed to know the real answers. And if I wasn't understanding the concept in class, I was going to ask enough questions until it was absolutely clear because I just, I I needed to know. I needed Indiegogo to be successful or I wanted it to be successful. And I was trying to use everything I possibly could to make that happen. So it it was funny because it really helped me let go of any kind of superficial worries or concerns that you may or may not have in your 20s. And it helped me just stay really focused and it ended up helping my classmates and help give them, you know, more, let them kind of free up a bit and not worry so much about what they look like and focus back to learning. Right. Because you were modeling it for them. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that in the world, women create 8% of venture backed startups, but that 47% of Indiegogo campaigns are run by women. And also your company has a, a balanced gender distribution in a area where men typically dominate in Silicon Valley. So can you talk about how intentional are some of those things? And if they are intentionally facilitated, then what is your thought process about why that's important? The reason we started Indiegogo was to remove all the barriers, or as many as we could, in the, in access to capital, which was one of the biggest barriers to getting an idea launched and off the ground. And one of those barriers is bias. And you can see that in the venture numbers we just quoted. And so by launching Indiegogo, the, the numbers speak for themselves. When you actually create an egalitarian open platform where you give everybody an equal chance to succeed then everybody who's worthy of succeeding succeeds. And so I'm not surprised that the number is so high of 47% of women are, are succeeding. And it's in a way that proves the point of why we, we started Indiegogo. And it's a number I love, and it's a number that really just speaks to our mission. Internally, you asked, was that intentional? Yes, very intentional. All the data shows the more diverse a company is, the better it's going to perform. Also for us as a company that believes in equal opportunity and empowering all people, we needed to be a company that, that walked that talk. And so we didn't do you know, quota programs or things like that. We, we just talked about our mission. We talked about what we're trying to achieve. And we tried to ensure that our recruiting process was as open and wide and inclusive as possible and something that we continue to work on. And I think by having a message, just our mission resonating with, you know, all human beings, we've been able to attract all kinds of people. And that has resulted in, in strong gender numbers. You know, there was a lot of proactive steps we took. I made sure I was speaking at women's conferences. I was, you know, ensuring that women knew that Indiegogo was an inclusive place to work. So there was proactive efforts there. And since then, our team has 
done an incredible job of, of reaching out and, and hiring more people. So, you know, we always lean on our current employees and team members to attract more people. So if you start diverse, it's actually much easier to stay diverse. The mission that we're on is something that kind of speaks to all people, not just men, not just women, all people. And so because of that, we actually, we can attract a larger swath of, of people. We started reporting on our gender stats, you know, very early before any companies our size were doing that. And all that is to, to send a strong message to the, to the world that this is something that's important. We actually can't serve our customers if our team doesn't actually look like our customers. That's really inspiring. I, I think that sets a really great model that other businesses would probably do well to follow. Your emphasis on democracy and, and equal access, is that why, I know that, that Indiegogo has looser guidelines in terms of what type of campaigns are allowed on the platform than some of your competitors. Is that, is that why? Is it because of that emphasis on kind of anyone gets to raise money for whatever they think is important? The structure that we were trying to fight against and change was this structure of the gatekeeper. So finance is built on the gatekeeper. There's a couple individuals that decide whether an idea has a right <laughs> to come to life and serve the world. And by kind of blowing up that model and actually just giving the world the power to decide which ideas come to life, the last thing we could ever become is a gatekeeper ourselves. That would be basically becoming the thing that we're trying to remove from the world. That's why we never had an application system where we internally decided which ideas could happen and which ideas cannot. Now we've had a lot of pressure from all kinds of people to change that, to institute an application system kind of in reaction or in response to, you know, some things happening, whether it's fraud happening or whether it's inexperienced people using Indiegogo to raise a ton of money and then they can't deliver on what they said they can do. And so rather than throw our hands up and say, yep, we were wrong, we need gatekeepers here, what's become one, which is where a lot of the industry has headed, instead of doing that, what I think what it's always important for us to do is look at look at what are the risk factors out there, look at some of the challenges and what ways can we help address those challenges without ever becoming the gatekeeper. So for example, sometimes a lot of we had some instances where, you know, people would raise money and then they were first time entrepreneurs and they messed up or they couldn't figure out their manufacturing or or whatever and they weren't able to deliver on what they wanted to deliver. And so rather than ban those type of people <laughs> from this from the platform, instead we've created partnerships where we actually help with manufacturing and help with risk assessment and feasibility assessment. And we give every entrepreneur an opportunity to go through that. We also have introduced new things where backers can see if an idea is just a concept stage or if it's much further along. And so they can themselves decide how much risk they're willing to take. So again, it goes back to empowerment, which is one of our main values. Um, we're here to empower and to help, not to decide and dictate who gets an opportunity and who doesn't. And so whenever issues like that pop up, and there will be more, that will kind of be a guiding light for us, which is how do we do better at empowerment to actually help people succeed. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So what does your day-to-day -day look like? How do you spend your days um, in 2019? <laughs> and that's actually something I'm figuring out. I'm, I just came off parental leave. I just had a second kid. And 
I've been absolutely enamored by the social security system here in Norway, the social democratic system, and how different it is from uh, the U.S. and how you know things like paid parental leave and you know universal subsidized childcare is actually critical in getting women back to work. And it's why Norway has one of the highest rates of women retention in the workforce. So these are kind of models and areas that have kind of taken my interest lately simply because of what I've just gone through in bringing another life into the world (laughs) physically. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking into stuff like that because I think the the U.S. could benefit a ton from learnings on how the policies and the programs here actually aren't just make moral sense, but they actually make a ton of economic sense. Because the more people you keep in the workforce, the more tax revenue, the more stability you have, the fewer problems you have to pay for later, the healthier babies are, you know, less health care costs. All, there's so many, so much research now that's showing how this model here is actually so responsible and economically sensible. And I'm actually now thinking of it through the purview of, of you know, entrepreneurship and getting more women on entrepreneurship. And I know so many women back in California who are entrepreneurs at their heart. They are builders, they are problem solvers, but they're just not launching companies because they need healthcare or they need that extra buffer and they're not willing to, you know, put their kids' healthcare at risk and things like that. So there's a lot of barriers because of the policies in the US that are keeping women out of the workforce one and two entrepreneurship specifically too. And the U.S. economy is hurting for that. So this is an area that I'm actually starting to lean heavily into and I'm trying to figure out what that actually looks like. I'm also doing some advisory and coaching and, and that kind of thing for startups here, which is starting to become fun. That seems great. I read in a UNC alumni article that you had said you felt UNC provided you this belief that business can be a vehicle for social change, which is something that I think not everyone believes or realizes. Can you talk more about how you learned that lesson at Carolina? You know, one of my first internships that I had through the Moorhead Kane program was an internship in London at Goldman Sachs. And that was really my first foray into business. (laughs) And I was pretty green, pretty naive, but it was kind of a crash course. Like this is how the world works, the good stuff, the bad stuff. And I think I came away with this concept because the summer before that was a completely different experience. And this is one of the things I love about the Moorhead Kane program was that it intentionally put you in a very different context in your summers because the more uncomfortable you are, the more you learn about yourself. And the prior summer I had spent up in the Bronx teaching kids who had every reason in the world to not succeed teaching them, helping them lean in and basically, you know, lifting them up because they were, they were determined not to become statistics. And I think the, the juxtaposition of those two experiences was so stark that it just left me with this, this feeling like, you know, these, these two things can't be so far away. It just, there needs to be, you know, we're one planet, one people. What is the connection between these two things? And I don't think I, I came to the conclusion like at any one of those summers, but it was the, 
aggregation of the experiences that just led me to kind of this path where, yes, I appreciate politics and policy because it has profound impact on people's lives, but money is powerful. This is what I learned in my finance internship. It controls so much. And those who control money control so much. And it's actually quite simple. If, if you want to improve the world, if you want to change the lives of people, if you want to change the circumstances of our planet, go to the source, which is those who control money. And I think that was this common theme. And that's probably what led me to Indiegogo. It's like, how do we get that, all that power out of just a few people's hands <laughs> and give it back to the people who's supposedly going to benefit from this. Honestly, I think the roots, you know, I think those two summer experiences were really pivotal because it showed me two extreme worlds. And so it, it provided the context for, for the thinking that eventually became Indiegogo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. So I want to be respectful of your time. I think um, the last question I really want to ask is, is about all of these accomplishments that you've that you've achieved. You've you've been named to a number of different influencer lists. You've been able to speak at lots of different conferences. You've addressed the U.S. House of Representatives. Is there any single honor or accomplishment or opportunity that you have been most proud of achieving? I honestly think it's just hearing the stories of entrepreneurs that were, you know, had no opportunity and because of Indiegogo, their lives are completely changed. But one of the first memories that comes to me is I was at a concert of all places and I think I had an Indiegogo bag on my shoulder and I was just listening to the musician and I see this person kind of coming through the crowd, like parting the waters of people coming right towards me. And I'm getting a little bit nervous. Like, what is this person <laughs> doing? And he comes right up to me and he, he says, do you work at Indiegogo? And I said, yes. And he said, I just wanted to say, thank you. You changed my life. I got my business going that I'd always dreamed of. Wow. The largest campaigner on Indiegogo right now is is a mother of three kids. She's a single mom. <laughs> She's raised over $20 million for an electric bike, an economical electric bike. So not a super fancy, but she's trying to bring electric bikes to the regular person. And she's raised over $20 million to bring this concept into the world. And she's trying to inspire more people to bike, be healthier, get carbon emissions down. And she's a mom of three, you know? And I can only imagine the investor meetings she had to take and what that was like because you get a lot of judgment how can you be a mom of three and run a business and blah 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 mm -hmm. they don't probably say it that way but you can feel it and I have so many female friends who've been in investor meetings where they just feel that dismissal in different ways and so the fact that Indiegogo existed gave her the power to do it her own way and not have to deal with that bias and the judgment and the assumptions and just let, let her have her path, bring her company to market, be connected to her customers and deliver. So for me, it's, you know, that's my favorite part is telling the stories of our customers. And I know it sounds cheesy, but that's why we started Indiegogo. And it's, yes, the, the awards are nice, but the reason 
the reason we started, I mean, these customer stories basically tell us that that audacious idea that a lot of people laughed at actually was worthy pursuing. Mm -hmm. It's the why for you. Yeah, it's the why. You've been listening to Catalyze, a podcast from the Moorhead Kane Foundation at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thanks to Danae for all of her fascinating and inspiring insights on women in business and the future of finance. Thanks also to Creighton Irons, Moorhead Kane Class of 05 for our fantastic theme music. You can find more of Creighton's work at creightonirons.com. That's C-R-E-I-G-H-T-O-N-I-R-O-N-S.com. Next week, you'll hear from Jim Exum, a member of the first undergraduate class of Moorhead Kane Scholars, the class of 1957, and former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. If you like what you've been hearing on Catalyze, please tell your friends and then rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks.